Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. It was quite a few years ago now, uh, and this is when I was in uni back in India. I had a close friend from Malaysia. And we would continue to spur each other on to, to continue to follow Christ. And we were very actively involved in the church in so many different ways. In fact, I, I remember this uh, friend of mine even suggested, hey, why don't we start a, a Christian band and then even have something where we can be an encouragement to other churches and go from one church to another, uh, perhaps encouraging them in singing certain songs and learning certain songs, and then perhaps one of us can even um, expound something from the Word of God to be an encouragement to other churches. And I remember distinctly of how he was so excited about it and how we all got on board and we, you know, by God's grace, we started something as immature as we were, and, and uh, God has seemed to bless that in whatever way he saw fit. And yet, I, for some time, I lost touch with this friend of mine, especially after uni days. And uh, in the past year, I learned through a common friend that this friend of mine is no longer walking in the faith. He has completely rejected the faith and um, he's embraced some sort of new age religion uh, but has otherwise completely denied the Christian faith. What do we make of something like that? Maybe you've heard of someone or maybe someone uh, close to you that you know of who once claimed to follow Jesus and claimed to love Jesus and right now is not following Jesus. What are we to make of so, such people? I mean, do we, can we still pray for them? Uh, can we still encourage them? Uh, point them back to Jesus or do we just let them be? Is it they're totally lost beyond cause? Is it, and then even more so for those of us who are Christians, what does that mean? Does that even mean that people can lose their salvation? Because, you know, there's people who've shown so much of evidence or apparent evidence of faith and be so actively involved in the church and for quite a few years and then just totally walk away. Does that mean we can lose our salvation? Well, this text before us, particularly the first half of this text, uh, verses 4 through 8 in particular, there have been people who've looked at this and wrongly taught others that, yes, Christians can lose their salvation, and here's evidence of it. There are others... Uh, Christians who have read this and sometimes even caused them a lot of grief, thinking, oh no, I, I, you know, I think I've sinned in such a way that now I'm just gone, I'm lost, and they totally lose their sense of assurance of salvation. I trust that as we go through this passage this morning, we will understand what this passage actually teaches and it would serve the purpose for which it has been written, that is to cause the believers to continue to persevere in their faith, to follow Jesus. Just by way of the author's flow of thought, he had, a couple of weeks ago, introduced to us the concept of Jesus as the messianic son who is now not just eternal king but eternal high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And then last week we saw in the first half, the last part of chapter 5 and in the verse, first few verses of chapter 6, 
where the author stops himself. He doesn't continue on. He says, I have much to say to you about this, but it's difficult for me to say. Why? Because of where you are at, he says. See, because he says the concern that he sees with the Hebrew Christians that he's writing to is that they have become dull of hearing. They become sluggish toward the things of God. And he says that what you still need is milk. And it's almost like I have to tell you once again the basic principles, the elementary things of the gospel. You haven't progressed on. You're not progressing on to maturity. Instead, you are regressing backwards. You're still spiritual babes. And then he's continuing to encourage them, but we must leave behind all of us. We must leave behind these elementary doctrines of Christ and continue on to maturity and dive deeper into the deeper doctrines of Christ. He's told us last week. Because this is what is going to help you to persevere. Not just stay at repentance and faith. Not just stay at the baptism that comes right after you're saved and identified as a believer. And just understanding that there is a future resurrection of the dead and those who reject the faith will be damned and those who trusted in Jesus will be resurrected. No, you need to dig deeper into the gospel and the doctrine of Christ. And now, he's going to further go in, as much as he has chided them a little bit with the fact that they've become dull of hearing the word and they're regressing backward. Now he'll go on to really explain why he was trying to kind of stoke their heart sort of saying, hey, you're regressing backwards, you need to be careful, but you need, instead you need to be progressing forward. Because the issue is, in the Christian life, if you are not progressing forward, there's no neutral Christian, you are regressing backward. Remember, I, I talked about it's similar to doing exercise. If you're exercising and going to the gym and whatnot, you gain muscle and stamina and so on and so forth. But you stop and you stop for a while. You're not going to stay at that same level. You're not going to continue building that muscle. You're actually going to regress. And it's the same in the Christian life. But now he's going to get to the heart of why this, this chiding that he's been doing to them. And really, again, it's to cause them to persevere in the faith. I've titled this morning's sermon as Don't Stop Persevering. And over here, we're going to look at this section under two headings. Firstly, we're going to look at the warning against apostasy. That's in verses 4 through 8. And then the encouragement to persevere in verses 9 through 12. So the warning against apostasy and the encouragement to persevere. Now, I just want to tell you, just again, because, you know, even as I've been thinking through this passage and as I've read a few commentaries as well, there's, you know, so many different views people have taken with regards to what this passage is talking about. Well, from the get-go, let me just say this. The book of Hebrews has a bunch of warnings. And the warnings, they serve the same purpose. They do the same thing. What they do is this. They warn about a future judgment that will take place if you are to take a certain path. And so the warning is saying to the believer, don't go down this path, but continue to persevere in the faith. Because if you don't, then you can expect judgment in the future. That's what every single warning in the book of Hebrews does. It's just, uh, in a basic sense, that's each of the warnings in the book of Hebrews. And ultimately, these warnings are to encourage the believer, even through the warnings, to be aware of the danger, so as not to take this alternate path and abandon Jesus, but continue to follow Jesus and persevere in the faith. I want you to keep that in mind even as we 
look at this passage now. So don't stop persevering in the faith. And the first thing that the author wants to help us understand as he warns us against uh, apostasy in verses 4 through 8. Why is it important that we progress on to maturity and not regress back spiritually? Why is that so important? He says, verse 4, for, as in explaining the reason now, it is impossible. And he's now going to explain that reason. And what he's going to do here, he's going to give certain descriptions of people. Why is he doing that? He wants to really jolt them and make them understand, hey, you're in this spiritually sluggish state. I want you to understand that. And he wants them to get them out of that sluggish state to cause them to keep moving forward and not regress backward. And here he describes a group of people with five phrases in verses four through six. And these descriptions also are you know, they're echoes from the Old Testament wilderness generation of Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. You know, he talked a lot about that old wilderness generation of Israelites in chapters 3 and 4. And so there's a lot of echoes of that even in this warning that he's given, giving. Remember these, the audience that he's speaking to, these are professing Christians from a Jewish background. And they knew their Old Testament quite well. So when he uses certain phrases and words and certain things, they'd be immediately able to connect with, oh, that's talking about those things that happened there. And they will connect to, oh, I I see what he's saying here now. So let's look at these five descriptions as the author warns them against apostasy. First, he says, in the case of First description of the people is that those who have once been enlightened. Now, if you turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9 and verse 12, there's a description of the wilderness generation there. And there the prophet says that by a pillar of cloud you lead them in the day and a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. That's talking about the wilderness generation of how at night this pillar of fire, God led them through this pillar of fire to be a light for them. That that same word there, you can even translate it to enlighten their way in the way that they should go. So the wilderness generation, they were enlightened by the pillar of cloud by which God guided them at night. And when you think about it, this so-called enlightenment of the pillar of fire was for the whole people of Israel, all of the children of Israel, whether they were true believers or not. This enlightening and showing them the path that they should go. Now, in the New Testament age, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus says in John 1.9, the true light which gives light to everyone. It's that same word there where you can say, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And then later, Jesus himself says in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So it's like Jesus is saying, you remember that pillar of fire that enlightened the people and helped them in their journey of life? Well, I'm the fulfillment of the pillar of fire. And this enlightenment is what is later then described in Hebrews 10, verse 26, where it says, and having received the knowledge of the truth in Christ to guide them in this life. That receiving of the knowledge of truth in Christ, that true knowledge of God in Christ. But here's the thing. So when you think about this, when you hear the echoes from the Old Testament, when you hear Jesus saying this, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and someone is enlightened, 
You could say it refers to someone who has intellectual knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, the truth of the gospel is intellectually clear to them. They have been enlightened in that sense. The knowledge of the truth of God has come to them as, as they've heard it. But then it can also be used, this word enlightenment, to refer to someone who has truly embraced the gospel and has moved from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. So it could be a believer or an unbeliever, just like it was for the Israelites who were enlightened by this pillar of fire to guide them. Okay, so that's the first description. So at this point, it's like, Believer, unbeliever, could be anyone. Okay, second description. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Go back to Nehemiah and Nehemiah 9.15, where the prophet says, and you gave them manna from heaven, meaning you freely gifted them manna from heaven. And this was provision for, again, the whole entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness, regardless of whether they were believers or not. And then you come to the New Testament, Jesus says in John 6, after feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, there's a conversation about manna from heaven, and Jesus says, oh, it, it was not Moses who provided you manna, it was my Father who gave it to you. And then he says in John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life from heaven, and whoever comes to me will no longer hunger. What does Jesus say? I'm the fulfillment of the manna from heaven. That, that manna from heaven that was there, that the Israelites were fed with in the wilderness, I'm now the fulfillment of that, and whoever comes to me will not hunger. And here it says, and have tasted this heavenly gift, this heavenly gift from above, this manna from above. Now, interesting thing again with this word taste. Now, sometimes, less often than not, it can mean to just sip or experience partially. So, for example, in Matthew 27, 34, when it talks about Jesus tasting the wine with gall, but did not drink it. It has that sort of idea. He, he, he just kind of had a small sip of it, small taste of it, but didn't really drink it all up, didn't fully experience it. But then most times this word taste is, is used in a way to experience something fully. In fact, even in Hebrews 2.9, we saw this when it says, Jesus tasted death. It means that Jesus experienced death fully, not just had a partial taste of it or a partial sip of it. So again, this word taste can either mean just a less frequently so, can mean uh, take a sip or experience partially, or more often it can mean to experience fully, to taste fully. So when it says, tasting the heavenly gift, which is Jesus himself, the manna, it could refer to partial tasting or a full tasting of Jesus and his salvation. Either an initial experience of joy of responding to the gospel or a full lasting experience of having truly experienced and tasted the gospel. So again, this could be a believer or an unbeliever having uh, just some initial response to the gospel, some favorable response initially, or someone who's truly converted and has a true taste of the heavenly manner. So that's the second description. Now thirdly, now I know these are a lot of words and we're just going through this slowly, but I think if we go through this, it helps us to better understand what the author is saying. The third description here, it says, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, Nehemiah 2, uh, go back to the book of Nehemiah and look at chapter 9 and verse 20. It talks about how the Holy Spirit was given to the people to instruct them. What is this talking about? It's talking about when in Numbers 11, Moses cries out to God and he was finding it hard to lead the people of Israel. 
And he cries out to God and God says, okay, I want you to appoint 70 elders and then the Holy Spirit comes and then falls on these 70 elders as well. And now in this way now, these 70 elders too can is, assist Moses in leading the people by the help of the Holy Spirit. Instruct them and help them in different ways and assist Moses in leading the people by the power of the Holy Spirit. So while not everyone in Israel received the Holy Spirit, they partook, all of Israel partook of the blessing of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of others, through the ministry of Moses and through the ministry of these 70 elders. Now similarly, in the New Testament age, people can experience or partake of the Holy Spirit either directly, how? When the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in the uh, life of a believer, they directly experience the blessing of the Holy Spirit, or indirectly receiving some of the benefits of the Holy Spirit through how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of other believers whether it's through their leadership or the wisdom or the Christ-like love and service that Christian have, Christians have as a result of the Holy Spirit working in them, they experience the blessing of the Holy Spirit in that sense. So there's a partaking of the Holy Spirit too. And this experience could, you could say, in one sense, could, could be a believer if it's a direct partaking of the Holy Spirit but it could also be an unbeliever if it's an indirect partaking of the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Now the next phrase, verse 5. He says, next descriptor is, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Now the good word of God, it refers to his good promises to his people. You know, all, all the Israelites had experienced or tasted the goodness of God's word of promise in, in that they were all delivered out of Egypt from slavery. You know, whether they were true believers or not, all of them experienced the goodness of God that way, in that it was fulfilled that way. But ultimately, not everyone fully tasted the goodness of God's promises because not everyone ultimately entered the land. But certainly some of them experienced some of it as God had promised, they would be delivered from Egypt. And then in the New Testament age, through the hearing of the gospel, these people are tasting something of the goodness of God's promises fulfilled in Christ as the gospel is being preached. Again, that's fulfillment in Christ. That's the good word of God. And people can taste it in some sense. Now the fourth description, again verse 5, it says, and have, again, and have tasted the powers of the age to come. Now what are the powers of the age to come? These are the signs and the wonders and the miracles that accompany the gospel. Those signs and wonders to verify the message of the gospel. In the early days of the church, when the apostles were still around, and we saw this in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4. You know, we talked about the fact that miraculous signs and wonders didn't always happen in biblical times. In the 6,000 years of redemptive history, there have been only three brief time periods where miracles were common. From Adam all the way to Moses and uh, Joshua, there were no miracles. But then during the time of Moses and Joshua, as the old covenant people of God, the Israelites were being established, miracles were common. Then again, nothing for many years. Then till the time of Elijah and Elisha. Then after the time of Elijah and Elisha, again, nothing for hundreds of years, no miracles again. Then miracles come back again during the time of Jesus and during the time of the apostles, where now the new covenant people of God and the church is now first being established. And then they were, at those, during those times, that first century age of the church, there were eyewitnesses to blind people having sight and the lame walking and dumb people speaking and people being healed from long-term illnesses and many other miracles. It was just rampant. 
And it was a foretaste of what was to come when Jesus would return again to establish his kingdom. Where nobody would, everyone would be healthy, uh, would be without any sin, and uh, they would be in the kingdom of God. And again, this is just like the entire wilderness generation of Israelites. Where the entire congregation of of the Israelites back then saw the miracles of God, whether they were believers or not. Similarly here now, the entire congregation of professing Hebrew Christians were witnesses to these signs and wonders. So the first five descriptors here, the author has worded it in such a way that it could be a believer's experience or to a degree, an unbeliever's experience who has come to have knowledge of the gospel of Christ in an intellectual sense has experienced something of the goodness of the fulfillment of God's word in Christ and the blessings of the Holy Spirit by proxy through others and have been eyewitnesses to the powerful miracles of God. So, so far, it can be anyone. Now he adds a final description to the kind of people. Notice in verse 6. And then have fallen away. So all these six descriptors are one package. So you can't separate them out. They all go together. The first five, you know, everyone in this Hebrew congregation too could say, check, 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 whether they were believers or unbelievers. Everyone could, uh, to some degree, check all those boxes. Now the question is, can you check this last box? When you think of the wilderness generation of Israelites, except for Caleb and Joshua, and that second generation of Israelites, the rest of the Israelites experienced all this, yet fell away over time. They checked this last box as well. Despite the spiritual experiences and the provisions and the blessings and even witnessing the powerful miracles of God, they eventually rebelled against God and fell away, the wilderness generation of Israelites. So the implication for the current listeners is this. This could be a person who has experienced some of the spiritual blessings of knowing the gospel and have had certain spiritual experiences and even been eyewitness to the miracles, miraculous signs and wonders. But yet, after some time, have fallen away. Now what does this mean to, to fall? It doesn't mean that a true believer can't fall in sin. Uh, all of us know that. All of us believers know that. In fact, sometimes believers can fall into sin and turn their back on Jesus, sometimes even for extended periods of time. It's what people sometimes call as a backslidden Christian. But if the person is a true believer, even a person who has backslidden will eventually repent of their sins and turn back to Jesus. Take Peter, for example. He's an example of a believer who denied Jesus three times. And he abandoned Jesus and ran away from him. But then he repented and returned to Jesus. That's an example of a backslidden believer. So, but the author here is not talking about that kind of falling away. No, he's talking about an ultimate kind of falling away where the person leaves the faith and rejects Christ in an ultimate sense. This is not a backslidden person. This is a person who by ultimately falling away from the faith and rejecting Christ shows that they were never a true believer of Jesus Christ in the first place. You know, one, one verse that really helps us understand this is in 1 John. 1 John 2 and verse 19. Where it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. As in, they left the Christian faith because they were never really Christians in the first place. That's why they have abandoned the faith. 
This is not a Peter-like person. This is a Judas Iscariot type person who looked like a believer for a few years, evangelized, even performed miracles in Jesus' name, and then rejected Jesus and never repented and never comes back to Jesus, proving that he never really was a believer. This is someone the Bible calls as not as an apostate. And look, and verse 6, it says, for such a person, it is impossible to restore such people to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. See, it's that these people have so hardened their heart to the gospel that they've reached a point where God gives them over to their sin and rebellion. And this is now a point of no return. They're in that state now. They've so hardened their heart against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have deliberately chosen to take this side and reject Jesus, even though at first they seemed like a Christian. This is a person by his definitive rejection of Jesus, who says by his actions, I reject the saving work of Jesus. I believe Jesus deserved to be crucified and that he deserved to be publicly shamed. And in that sense, this person is aligning himself with those who crucified Jesus and publicly shamed him. That's what this person is essentially doing by ultimately rejecting Jesus, saying Jesus deserved to die. He deserved to be publicly shamed and to be put on that cross. And I'm, I'm making my mark with those who rejected Christ back when Jesus was crucified. See, here's the thing. None of us can tell the difference between the beginning of backsliding and the beginning of apostasy. Oftentimes in both scenarios, there is some crisis or there is some sin that this person is coddling and toying around with. And from there, there's a slow-growing apathy toward Christ and his word. But it's only after time that the one who is backslidden, who is a true believer, then will at some point repent of their sins and actually return back to Jesus. But the apostate, on the other hand, continues to harden their heart and they totally reject Jesus. I want to reiterate what I'm, what I'm saying is an apostate. An apostate, according to the Bible, is not someone who first had faith and then lost their faith in Jesus. That's not what an apostate is, according to the Bible. An apostate, according to the Bible, is someone who professed to have faith for some time, but then eventually they reveal their true colors that they never really had the faith because now they've totally abandoned Jesus. They never had the faith in the first place. That's what an apostate is. They lived as a fake Christian for a while and then finally their true colors are seen as time has passed. I wonder if there's anyone listening here who's thinking of walking away from Jesus. Maybe because of some crisis in your life, like, oh, all this following Jesus, I, I, I'm done with this. Or maybe it's some sin that's luring you, and, and you, know, you, you just want to coddle on to that sin, and you're thinking of, oh, this Jesus and living the Christian life. I, I don't want that. Well, friend, I would ask you to consider the strong warning from the author of Hebrews about abandoning Jesus. Because you don't want to be in the place where God gives you over to your rebellion and your hardened heart. That is the worst place that you can be in. If you abandon Jesus, it will be for your own eternal ruin. And there is no salvation outside of Jesus. Now to explain his point... The author uses an illustration in verses 7 and 8. Look at what he says. 
For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So what's the illustration here? Two pieces of land. They look quite similar. And this land is referring to people. And then the same rain falls on both these pieces of land. The rain represents the, the word of God that is being preached and as it is heard by the people that are there. As the word of God is preached and as the gospel is being preached. So both groups of people hear the same gospel and the word of God. And you could say both lands on the outside, at least in the beginning, look like they were being refreshed by the rain. Things are getting wet and things seem to be getting a little bit moist. Both had similar initial responses and experiences. Both groups looked like they were responding positively to the gospel. But then over time, one land produced good crop and was useful. Whereas the other land was unproductive. You can tell this only over time. It had only thorns and thistles. And it proved itself, not that good soil had become bad soil, but it proved itself to be bad soil in the first place even though it was exposed to the same good rains as that other piece of land. So the danger of those who reject Jesus as their only savior, even if at the start there seemed to be some sort of positive response, is the coming judgment of God. The analogy says that ultimately their end is fire, that they will be thrown in the fires of hell and only thing they will face is eternal condemnation if they reject Jesus as their savior and abandon him. You know, maybe there's some of you here who have loved ones or people that you know personally who've rejected and abandoned Jesus, even though they once claimed to be Christians. So does that mean that that's it for them? Let me tell you this. None of us can know for sure if that person is backslidden or if that person has truly and ultimately hardened their heart to Jesus and is an apostate. Only God will ultimately know that. So what is it that you can do then? Pray for them. Continue to pray for them. And ask God to show them their sin. And they would truly repent and turn back to Jesus. Now for those of us who are Christians. Because really the author is wanting to encourage Christians. The point of this warning of, of becoming an apostate getting into that state of being totally lost. It, he's giving this warning this way of the danger of becoming an apostate so that we would be even more cautious of any kind of movement in our hearts and our minds to move away from Christ toward that dangerous edge. That's the whole point of this. It is meant to cause us then to see the danger and cause us to cling to Christ even more so. More like a child who knows that the child can easily fall off the cliff as they're climbing uh, perhaps a hill and the child holds on to their father's hand even more tightly because they see, oh, if I go on this way, I'm going to fall off the cliff. And so in this way, as, as do the other warnings of Scripture, the warnings become a means by which God preserves us and protects us and keeps us from falling off the edge. Why? Because true believers will heed the warning, will heed the danger, will know, oh, that's danger, danger. I mustn't keep going that way. 
and will more so cling on to Jesus and move away from the danger. So that's the point of this, this warning that he's given. So the author has now just talked about certain subjective experiences that a person can have. But they don't necessarily prove that that person is a Christian. Could be a Christian, could not be a Christian. Now, you know, his listeners might be thinking, but then how do I know that I won't fall away? How do I know that I'll make it to the end? I mean, is there some way that I can have objective assurance that I will actually make it to the end? The author now answers that very question in how a person then can have objective assurance that they will truly make it to the end. And here we come to our second point, the encouragement to persevere, verses 9 through 12. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. So he's kind of, okay, he's chided them, said, you guys are going backwards. This is, I'm lovingly telling you, this is not a good path you're on. You're regressing backwards rather than going forward. And the danger of that is the danger of apostasy. The more you keep moving in that direction. Now that he's warned them sharply, he says, beloved, I do really love you. You know, I've told you about the dangers of being sluggish and going backwards, the danger of apostasy that's there if you keep moving in that direction. Now he wants to encourage them. Therefore, now that they've been jolted, so to speak, he wants to encourage them in the opposite direction and have genuine assurance that God's grace has been made evident in their life. And so he says this in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Or you could say God is not unjust so as to forget your work. Now notice verse 10, it starts with four. It's providing the reason or the explanation of the, these evidences of grace. It explains why you can have objective assurance why he can have even objective assurance about these people. Because he says God is not unjust to overlook or God is not unjust to forget. Now one thing, just biblically, as you understand the concept of God remembering and forgetting, or even just the, not just God, when, when there's mention of remembering and forgetting, the forgetting is, or the remembering is not just an intellectual Oh, I forgot something, now I remember. That's not what remembering in the Bible actually means. It's not just merely that. You know, you can think of the thief on the cross when the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's not just saying, oh, Jesus, just intellectually remember me, just don't forget me. No, that's not what he's saying. Or we saw even in the book of Genesis, different times when God remembered. For example, Noah when he was in the ark and it said, and God remembered Noah. It's not saying, oh, God has forgotten about Noah and now he's intellectually remembered. No, remembering has this idea of where you focus on something and that, that focus on something drives you to do something as a result. That's the idea of remembering something. So it's not just an intellectual thing where you focus something or remember something, but then it causes you to do something. And so forgetting then, or overlooking, would be the exact opposite. It's, it's basically saying, I'm not going to bring that to mind, I'm just not going to do anything for you. It's that sort of idea. You could even say forgetting would be close to the word abandonment. So what he's saying is God is not unjust that he will not forget or he will not abandon you. He will not neglect you believers. He will not forget you. Why? Because he, he's not an unjust God. 
See, the author wants the believers to be objectively confident that they will persevere because, because he points to the fact that God is the one who's going to make it happen. See, what he says is where he says, God will not abandon your work. It's collective work. What is this work that he's talking about? It's the work that God has done in the believer's life that then finally flows out of their life. So you could even say, as Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will complete that work. See, think of the context in which these, these Christians are living in, these Hebrew Christians. They're regressing backwards, they're facing persecution and suffering. Now it's easy for them at this point to, and they're, they're trying to live for Jesus and they're serving others and so on. But it's easy for them to then suddenly think, oh, this is not... God loving you and taking care of you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have all these troubles in your life. No, he's actually forgotten you. And the author is saying, no, he hasn't forgotten you. He will not neglect you because he has started a work in your life and he will complete that work. And that is your objective assurance that you will go on to the end. And you say, what is that work that he has done in these believers' lives? Well, good question. It's a love that comes from God and a love that then goes back to God. See, that's what he says there. The work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. That love for God, where do they get that from? That's God's work in their life. And so their objective assurance is God has begun that work. And look, your love for God is shown how? In the way you serve others. In the way you serve your Christian brothers and sisters. Again, even as we talked about last week, loving Jesus, it's not just this way. It has to then be lived out this way. If loving Jesus means just that vertical relationship, either the person is entirely ignorant of what it means to be a Christian, or the person is not even a Christian. Because somebody who truly loves Jesus, then that will automatically flow, because that's a work of God. And that will flow as love for others. In fact, what the author is saying is you can have objective assurance because this is God's work in your life. He has not abandoned you. He will not forget you. He will not leave you because look at the work that God is doing in your life. That love of God that you have in the way now you are serving others and loving others, other fellow Christian brothers and sisters. You know, it's interesting how love for Jesus then results in love for others. But even as Galatians 6.10 also has this concept, there's a call to help or love, especially the household of faith. That's the primary. It starts with the household of faith. It starts first and foremost with Christians and then to the outside world. Now I was thinking about this and I was thinking of why that emphasis particularly on the primacy of loving the Christian brothers and sisters first. Here's a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are lots of other reasons, but here's a couple of reasons. Well, to live the Christian life is difficult. So we need the help of each other to live the Christian life. That's one obvious answer. But I think, you know, as I was thinking about this, this emphasis on loving the, the family of God, loving his people, is because when you're part of the family of God, let's say a church like this, and we have people with different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses, different levels of maturity, you know, different cultural backgrounds, different thinkings and whatnot, 
And there are times when either because of our proclivities we'll irk each other or we might even sin against each other. Now, it's quite easy to love someone out there where we meet once in a blue moon. Or, you know, here's a person in need, I'll go help that person. I don't see that person on a regular basis or a weekly basis or even uh, whatever. But the people here, no, you've got to live your life out with these people. Imperfect as we are. And you see each other's sin. And you irk each other. And then to truly love, that is a, a wonderful way of expressing the love of God in Christ that you have already experienced. Because when people like us from different backgrounds and different personalities and where we sin against each other, hopefully not deliberately, and yet we continue to love one another, what does it point to? That's God's work. I'm confident of this. This is God's work in the life of the church. You know, I'm, I'm so thankful for this church. You know, I, I think of the many members in our church who do love people and serve people so tirelessly even behind the scenes. Just, just practically, you know, I know last week I encouraged some of the men to join the setup team, but I'm thinking of those who've already been and have been doing it for so long. They tirelessly come and do it. You think they feel like doing it? Just because it just feels good? No, ultimately it's their love for God and love for us that they come and do it. The AV team, they come on Saturdays, they come on Sundays, and even after everyone's talking, they're still packing up and doing things. That's an evidence of their love for Jesus. That is shown in their love for others as they serve others practically this way. Those serving in the kitchen. Not notice those who uh, take out signs and bring that in. Those during the week who make phone calls that nobody knows of. Just to encourage others. Those of you who open your homes to others. To love others and to care for them and to nurture them and to pray for them. Those who invite others into your lives. I know so many of you, maybe not directly, but I hear the whispers at least. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for the work that he is doing in you and in the life of this church. And the author says, as a result, you can have assurance that you will continue. Because this is God's work. He who began a good work will complete that work. And he will keep you and he will preserve you and he'll keep going. And that's why the author here says that you not only love people as in, in the past, but you're continuing to do so. This is the present experience as well. You're continuing to do that. Now look at what he says after that. Sorry, I've lost my train of thought in my notes, but... He says in verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So what's he saying now? So he says, keep on going. Continue with the same earnestness in your love for God, love for Jesus, and in your love for others. As you open God's word. So if I'm connecting it to what he has said uh, from last week, as you open God's word and you're ingesting God's word and you're going from milk to more solid food and you're training yourself to apply God's word and then that comes in the way where you you're reminded again of God's love in Christ and that practically goes out in serving others and ministering to others and loving others, particularly the household of faith. At least beginning there, not saying we don't love others. But here's the question. So is he saying this is God's work or man's work, this loving others? Because in verse 11, he says, you need to be diligent in this. You need to show the same earnestness so that you can have full assurance. But then in verse 10, he said, God's not going to overlook you. He's not going to abandon you. This is his work in you. So which one is it? I would say it's, it's similar to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
right, where it says, work out your salvation. So that's something man must do, the believer must do, work out your salvation. But the reason for that, for it is God who is at work in you. So understanding that it is God who's working in you, that motivates you, energizes you, empowers you, then to live that reality out. See, this is, this is not some faith plus works thing that he's talking about. Oh, I need to have faith in Jesus, and I need to have love for others. That's, that's salvation. That's not what he's talking about. This is faith evidencing itself in love for others. Big difference between the two. If somebody genuinely has loving faith in the Lord Jesus, it will come out as love first and foremost if you're part of this church with your brothers and sisters here. Rather than wanting to run away from this crowd here, you want to be with the people. Yes, we might irk you a bit and sin against you, But because of your love for God and love for Jesus, that love for others is continuing to grow. And then, let me just also say this. Paul talked about the membership class that's coming up. This is why it's important to be part of a church and to be committed to a church and not be in the fringes. See, because there's a very real sense in which you can have assurance of your salvation. Now, again, not saying that you get saved by joining a church. But let's say, let me think of just a random example of a member of our church. And they come to me and they say, hey, Benoit, I don't know, I just feel my faith is so weak. I don't see myself growing. I have huge doubts of salvation. You know, a lot of the times, you know what I do? I say, but brother, sister, I know the way you've served that person and how God has used that. You didn't do that for anything else. That was your love for Christ. I know the way that you served that way and that way and that way. That's evidence of your love for Christ. And so we all need this as we share in each other's lives, as we talk to one another, we encourage one another. Saying, I see evidence of God's grace in your life, of saving grace in your life, in the way that you are serving others. In fact, let me encourage you to do that. At the end of this service, go to a few people. I'm not talking about flattery at all. I'm talking about genuine evidences of God's grace that you see in a person's life, in the the way that they serve others. Go remind them of that. You know what's going to happen? They're going to be even more encouraged, and they will have further assurance of their hope of salvation. That's what it's going to do. And so, in closing, the author says, and the point of you having full assurance of hope until the end is so that, again, he's coming back to the same thing, so that you won't be sluggish, so that you won't be going forward. Instead, you would be going, uh, you won't be going backwards. Instead, you would be going forwards. And in fact, if there are others around you, when you think of imitate, imitate those through faith and patience, inherited the promises. So, I mean, he'll talk about that hall of faith in Hebrews 11. You know, maybe even as you read Christian biographies, you know, people have gone through so much of hardship, and yet how much they put their trust in Jesus and trusted him and served him. And imitate their faith, how they steadfastly, patiently persevered in their faith. So let me just uh, bring all this to a close. You know, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, you know, you know, you know I've, I must confess I've grown cold in my love for others. Or perhaps I'm growing cold in my love for Jesus. And I'm scared I'm going down this path. Let me encourage you, friend, The fact that you are scared, that's God's work of grace in your life. What you need to do now is repent and turn to Jesus. 
come to him for mercy as well as help in time of need, knowing that Jesus has been your perfect sacrifice on the cross and he has borne the judgment for your sin. And because of what Jesus has done, you are now free to serve others. And the more you serve others, and others see that, that's objective assurance for you that you will indeed keep the faith and persevere to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that that chastises us, that wounds us, that encourages us. But we thank you that this is all done because you're a gracious God. Because you want us to be aware of the dangers that we face in the Christian life. As our proneness to wander from the God we love. That we see these dangers and we come back to our Lord Jesus Christ and hold on to him even more. Recognizing the only fact that we hold on to him is because he himself is doing a work in holding on to us. And so Lord, we pray that you would encourage the believers here to continue to persevere in the faith. And if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, that they would think through the things that have been said. And uh, if they do have questions too, that they would come and speak to me or Donnie or perhaps somebody sitting next to them that they know as a believer. And that they would not go this Sunday from not knowing who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross for sinners like them. Father, we thank you for your word once again and help us to cling to Jesus and live to make much of him. We ask all these things for his name's sake. Amen.